How's it going, everybody? My name is Christian Wagner, and I'm the Militant Thomas, and I'm joined by John Fisher 2.0. How you doing, John Fisher? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Yep, yep. I'm sure this will be amazing. Now, this isn't something that uh, that I'm too aware of because, as you know, I am not a philosopher. I am a theologian who likes to occasionally dabble in the dark arts of philosophy, and uh, just for my own. Um, hmm my own ends and not for, uh, as Michael Hall said, you should be doing philosophy in itself. Uh, That's, that's not my thing. So this is going to be me sitting here, listening to what you say and asking whatever pops into my mind. That's, that's how this is going to go. Right. So I should probably give my background in this a bit. So my education in philosophy is not that extensive. I did study it for a year at university at an undergraduate level. Um, I was able to learn like first order predicate logic, things like that. I took a third year ethics course, um, which I really enjoyed. I even have the anthology from it on my bedside. It has a bunch of great essays. And I'm just mostly here as kind of a, uh, just to give like an introduction on the debate as it is in philosophy, at least to the best of my abilities. And like I said, I'm pretty much an amateur at this. So you should probably take my word with a grain of salt and do some further information if this is an inquiry that at least piques your interest. So I, w- I would say that okay. first. So um, could you point us to any good uh, secondary or primary sources on this question? I guess it might be a more appropriate question for right. after you tell us about it, but uh, keep that in the back of your mind and then I will let you share your screen and then you can you can just go ham. All right. So this isn't really going to be an introduction to ethics in itself, but maybe I'll just give a bit of background here. Um, so a, so the, in philosophy in, of ethics, there are roughly three positions you could really take on the matter of you know, what ethics concerns. You can be a moral non-naturalist, a moral naturalist, or a moral anti-realist. And even among those things, there's a lot of division, but you know that's just like a rough sketch. So moral naturalists want to say that yes, um, moral properties, that is the property of being good or bad, right and wrong, uh, which says you ought to do this and you ought not to do that and it's permissible to do that, like that sort of discourse, um, that's actually rooted in entities which are concrete and by concrete philosophers just mean they have causal powers and they can interact so you and me are concrete entities my cell phone is a concrete entity um god himself is a concrete entity um so on and so forth if it can if it has some causal efficacy it's a concrete entity and um two of the most popular ones in the christian uh his in christian history have been divine command ethics, which it just grounds the right and the wrong in the commands of God. And the other one is moral natural law theory, which is, you know, one I'm going to sketch, um, I'm going to sketch some sort of model of. And then there are moral non-naturalists. They'll want to say something like, uh, when it comes to, you know, moral discourse, uh, like, let's say something like, uh, when it comes to things like categorical norms, that is things you ought to do and you ought never to do. Um, when you speak of those things, those propositions, those things are what they call non-natural. They're abstract. 
they don't really have any causal interaction. Think of it like math. Like you don't interact with numbers, you don't interact with um, functions or that sort of thing on a daily basis. You don't interact with logic in that sense. These entities are abstract and they wanna say that, yeah, just doesn't really go down any further than this. Um, these are like very platonic and, or something akin to this. Um, however you wanna kind of uh, spell out abstract. And then there are moral anti-realists. So as you can guess, moral anti-realism just means that sort of discourse, you know, it's kind of like um, if you're a moral anti-realist, it's kind of like talk about um, as astrology. Like when your girlfriend says, and if your girlfriend says this, then break up with her. If your girlfriend says, you know, what, that's the kind of behavior I would expect from a Capricorn. Like, that's not really grounded by anything. That's not made true by anything. It's just false. Um, so they want to say it's either something like that, or they want to say it's more like an emotive response. It's like saying, like when I say, don't um, slaughter people, I'm saying, boo, slaughtering people. You know, it's just like a sort of emotive expression. Um, so it's something, in, or some people like to say it's subjective. Like I have a set of moral beliefs and values and I cherish them. And these are the kinds of things I want. Uh, you have uh, your own subjective tastes and values and preferences that you hold strongly to. Uh, we see how people interact over whether pineapple belongs on pizza. So uh, it could be something like that. Uh, pineapple, uh, in, in my view, I just don't like pineapple, regardless of whether it's on pizza or not. It's, uh, it's uh, just not great. So those are just like the overall camps you could find yourself in. So uh, was, is there anything uh, you'd like to touch on what I said there or does, does that kind of help explain it? That, uh, that sets up the debate pretty well. Um, I, yeah. I've, I've already kind of functioning in those categories. I just um, wasn't aware of the nomenclature. Yeah, like ethics, um, when it's like uh, ethics in the discourse of philosophers is very different from, you know, discourse in theology. Um, it's really not, there's really not this, this, the same discussion if you read the two sides, at least that's been my, my impression. Like if you read Thomas, he's not going to talk about, you know, categorical norms or some, or he's not going to use that sort of language, but you understand Thomas better than I do. Maybe you could speak to that. Um, no, he doesn't really speak in the, in, I've never heard categorical norms before, yeah. uh, <laughs> before this discussion. So he, he, he definitely does not speak in, in that language. He more, I, I mean, because there's Michael Hall put this really well, the, my one philosopher friend that I had on here, he says that when it comes to the differences between theology and philosophy, especially mm -hmm. in, uh, in ethics, um, Philosophy is more of a synthesis game, like take whatever is is true, good and beautiful from these various schools of thought. Mm -hmm. And you may have this 20th century philosopher who's grabbing on something that nobody had really discussed before. But when it comes to the the science that is uh, that is theology, it is much different. It isn't a game of mm -hmm. synthesis. You don't you don't syn synthesize error and truth. The same way that you can do with uh with philosophy in the various schools like i couldn't say like oh arius had some good points here i'm gonna take upon arius and his mm -hmm. uh 
and his uh and his good points on Christology, and I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of get rid of the bad stuff. That that's not what you do in yeah. in theology because it's a, a more dogmatic way of right. um, doing things. But there are some gray areas like origin. Like there are some things that let's yeah, let's definitely not follow origin on the pre-existence of the soul. But, you know, if he says something and argues for something that we know is orthodox, yeah, sure, let's cite some origin. I do the same thing when it comes to um when it comes to a lot of the reformers because right. I have a special love in my heart for for them. Yeah, I mean, a lot. Of, I mean, even a lot of uh, us more normie Catholics will do the same with C.S. Lewis. Like, uh, <laughs> Lewis writes this, and I'm going to take a bit of that and use it to explain some Catholic theology. Like, uh, I'm, Peter Kreeft uh, loves C.S. Lewis, and he usually is enamored with doing it with Lewis. So, yeah, that is understandable. Um, I believe in the deathbed conversion myth of Lewis. <laughs> ironically or unironically? Uh, ironically. Okay. Uh, let's uh, hope Father James isn't uh, watching. Or let's oh, hope man. he is. One of <laughs> How dare you attack the memory of Lewis like that? That <laughs> is a dirty papist. Dirty. Okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, Lewis is one person who, who's definitely like that. You know, I think um, there are others definitely in the reform camp that I do like i i really like jonathan edwards preaching method like it's really hard not to like sinners in the hand of an angry god yes yeah it's like the rhetorical skill is just absolutely good and i i think that's i think the uh that that's gonna be something helpful about the ordinariate too mm. is i was talking about this the other day like taking back lancelot andrews and his preaching method and a lot of these english preachers and then the english way of doing patrology which was just groundbreaking and absolute just insane depth when it came when it came to uh, the science of petrology so i mean i guess we can distinguish a little bit but uh do you want to get back into uh right back into the discussion <laughs> right so can a naturalist hold a moral realist position well it depends on what you mean by naturalist um i would want to say that yes you can be a moral naturalist and you can be a moral realist whether those two things are consistent with one another, I'd want to say that moral realism is more likely given theism, but I don't want to say that um, it's uh, in principle not something you can reconcile with the thoroughgoing naturalism. Um, I think I, I think you're just better off arguing for God's existence rather than arguing against uh, nature or against the idea that nature is the only entity. Um, Usually I find that, so here's what I mean. Um, let's say you have this sort of argument. If God doesn't exist, morals don't exist, but morals do exist. Therefore God exists. Let's say you have that sort of argument and you're talking to, you know, the naturalist and he's like, hmm, yeah, I see what you mean right there. Yeah, I guess God, yeah, I guess morals don't exist. Like they could just make a different sort of inference. They could just say, yeah, something like God would have to exist. Therefore, I'm just going to get rid of moral realism. So they could bite that bullet. Um, another thing that they can do is um, argue in this sort of way. Uh, they could say, for example, um, because if God, uh, they, they could actually argue that if God exists, that they can argue um, if God exists, then some sort of morality has to exist, but no morality exists. So they could be moral anti-realist. And because one of the properties we ascribe to God is his uh, infinite goodness, then God couldn't exist. So there are many ways to argue that point in philosophy. I think an 
naturalists could hold that position, but I think that on a probabilistic basis, it's more likelier on theism than on atheism. All right. And uh, that's actually why I think one of your best ways to even have a moral argument, at least at this point, is to defend the truth of morality and then try to show how that shows God exists rather than the mm. other way around. So the so I'm going to present. So this is still a work in progress. It's a sketch of moral naturalism. And I'm going to say that morality should be understood as like a science of or a method of learning about proper function. Um, and this is going to have a huge teleological component. So for, you know, guys who subscribe to a channel literally called Milton Thomas, you, you are, I'm good company. All right. Yes. All right. So uh, let's begin. First slide. Oh, uh, I'm in charge of that. Okay. <laughs> All right. So naturalistic moral realism. So this is the thesis you're going to, these are the things you're going to need to defend. One, there are true normative statements like you ought to do X and doing X is good. These statements, so um, those statements exist. People make those, and, and that's a pretty easy one um, really to defend. Uh, the next one is these statements are true or false. So uh, they could all be false, in which case we're going to get into the idea that you know morality is really like astrology. So at least some of them have to be true. And then, all right, and then, and they can't like be emotive reactions. Third, these sentiments, sorry, these statements are grounded in something concrete and external to your psychology, you know, something with causal powers. So it's- I have a, I have a quick question about, sure. about that one. Um, so how would this respond to, uh, for example, uh, St. Thomas's firm belief that truth um goodness and beauty don't exist in external realities but for example as he says in de veritate that truth exists in the mind how would how would that square all right so when philosophers use the word truth they it's basically more or less like a property of sentences so when you say something or other is true and there are tons of theories of truths on, on the matter um, at the bare minimum, uh, to say that a proposition is true is to just say is just to say that that proposition um, is the case. So, what do I mean by this? Um, remember, in the Gospels, Pontius Pilate says, "What is truth?" Mm. What does he mean by that? He just means, yeah, "Is this guy guilty?" You know, that's all the truth is. It's just a matter of which propositions are accepted, and th there's really nothing more than that. Um, so you could take something like that. You could say that truth is that which corresponds to reality. You can take a primitive notion of truth and say, yeah, we don't really know what truth is, but we just have to accept it and go from there. Um, so um, some people say truth supervenes on being. Um, for myself, I would probably count myself as a correspondence theorist. I would probably just want to say something along the lines of truth is that which corresponds to reality. So statements like such and such a thing is true just means something along the lines of there's a statement and there's something which it's constantly corroborating with so so would you say that uh that falsity and uh evil exist extramentum outside of the mind would would you in in your view of, of 
truth and uh, and I, evil and goodness. I I'd want to say truth exists external to the mind, but I don't want to say uh, falsicity uh, does nor do I want to say evil does because that's ascribing to them like a positive sort of property. Mm. I want to say that if they exist uh, extranos, that they exist as an absence of something, mm-hmm. no, such as an absence of a perfection or um, let's see, or in the case of evil, an absence of a good in the thing. In terms of falsicity, I'd probably want to say something like there is an uh, the proposition in your mind uh, fails to correspond because there's, you know, an absence of something that connects it to something external to your mind. So for example, if I said the cat is on the mat, but really the dog was really what was on the mat, uh, there is a lack of something. Namely, when I'm thinking about um, that proposition, um, the lack of uh, the lack of correspondence um, is what makes that proposition fail because there's a failure of correspondence in the animal, not necessarily in the relation, nor on the object it was on top of, but in the fact that the uh, subject was incorrect. So I'd want to say that something along, I, I haven't given it too much thought, but I'd want to say something along those lines. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll stop pushing on this one. You keep, keep going. <laughs> I don't want to turn this into like a 10-hour stream. No worries. Uh, but hopefully, at the very least, it gets you a little closer to what I'm thinking of here. I think um, it's a linguistic difference that we're talking about. Yeah, I think so, too. So these statements are grounded in something concrete and external to your psychology, something with causal powers. That is, it's not a matter of your... Pr- that's to say that what makes uh, the proposition true is that um, there's something uh, external to your mind that and your mind because it properly is corresponding to that thing then it correctly registers it as a norm or something that ought to be the case and these statements are instru- are in and these statements are instructive and sorry these statements are instructive to agents on how they ought to act so they inform your decisions and actions so if you know that such and such is good then you know you ought to act towards that thing and if you know such and such is bad you ought not to. Some of these statements are true stance independently. That is, they are true regardless of whether you desire them to be true. Um, so what I what do I mean by this? Um, it's not based purely on the desires of the agent that such uh, propositions are true, but rather it's due to the fact that uh, there is something external to your mind that makes it true, and it's just the fact you have to accept. And lastly, these beliefs are rational. That's, that is to say, you are warranted in believing that they're true. Notice I said warranted as opposed to justified, because that will come later. Um, so, uh, yeah, is there anything you'd like me to expand on or any question? All right. Oh, you're good. Keep pushing forward. So the semantics of goodness. So I do want to give uh, a reference for all my information here, because it is beautifully defended and uh, you could find its defense and you could find its explanation in a great book it's by david e alexander called goodness god and evil that is goodness god and evil by david e alexander Uh, i don't there's no citation of him throughout the powerpoint but um that's just because i didn't fully uh do it yet it's still like i said a work in progress but 
overall, I think it's uh, a great defense of um, of how uh, of the semantics, that is, the words we use, and explaining them in their logical relation with one another. And um, Alexander, sorry, David Alexander, uh, he has a lot of influence from um, Peter Geach, who was a professor. And he was a Thomist, and his wife and him were converts to the Catholic faith. And he was basically a huge early influence in analytic philosophy. You know, basically, they're the philosophers who try to mathematize everything. He was one of them. And what made him really brilliant is his insights through St. Thomas Aquinas. Now, I won't say Peter Geach got everything right. So, for example, he really never like the idea of God being omnipotent, not because of the logical problem of evil or something like that. Uh, he just didn't understand the, the concept of omnipotence. He said, I don't even know what it means to say that God can't do anything that violates his nature because that's just saying God can't do what God can't do. And of course, that led to a whole cavalcade of the literature, and I won't get into that too much, but you know, that's one of the things he's famous for. But another thing he's famous for is how we use the word good, because it's a very multifaceted word. So this is Peter Geach right here, um, mean mugging. Uh, he has a fantastic serious face. So he makes a distinction in uh, one of his essays between what he calls an, um, an adjective, sorry, two types of adjectives. One's an attributive adjective and the other is a predicative adjective. Now we all know that an adjective is a word that modifies um, another, a noun or a verb. So, um, if we, so, a big man and a brown man are two sorts of adjectives because they go into specifics about the kind of man we're referring to, and you could do it with verbs too. Now, it was a long jump, so long as the um, long as um, modifying the word jump there. Now, some, like the word big, are attributive, while others, like brown, are predicative. An attributive adjective has the following two properties. One, we must know the kind of thing some x is when modifying with the attribute in order to make sense of the attribute's meaning. And two, it does not guarantee uh, truth preservation through categorical inference. So uh, let's keep it. So, Let's just take the following uh, sentence. Mackie is white. Um, so I'm not sure if you know who Mackie is or what Mackie is. Um, so that's good. Uh, if nobody knows, then this will be a greater demonstration. However, so we don't know what Mackie is, but we do know what it would mean for Mackie to be white. It would mean, you know, assuming colors are real qualities. And yes, philosophers dispute that one too. Um, Mackie. Uh, typically reflects light containing all wavelengths from 390 nanometers to 700 nanometers. Furthermore, suppose Mackie is the kind of thing that belongs to some other subset of things X contained in the greater, sex, uh, uh, greater set Y. So if we were to say Mackie is a white X, all Xs are Y, therefore Mackie is a white X, would you... Uh, Christians say that that is, a, even though you don't know what Mackie is, would you say that it, that is both um, sound, if uh, assuming both premises are true, that that is a valid inference? That would be a valid inference. All right. So if P1 and P2 are sound, then the conclusion follows.
Okay, and again, we don't know what Mackie is, but we are going to use a different one, average sized. All right, we wouldn't know what to make of someone claiming Mackie is average size. We need to know what kind of thing Mackie is. An average sized elephant differs from an average sized mouse. Uh, again, suppose Mackie is the kind of thing that belongs to a subset of things X contained in a greater set Y. Mackie is average size uh, X, all X's are Y's, therefore Mackie is an average size Y. Uh, would you um, suppose that both premise one and premise two were true? Uh, would the conclusion follow? Um, that's that's a that's a tricky one. Yeah. Uh, I would say that the conclusion would follow. Okay, you're going against my slide. I should definitely not have, have written those <laughs> those leading those leading uh, questions. Okay, so I'm gonna in the next slide I'm just gonna reveal what Mackie is. So this is Mackie, he's my girlfriend's dog. So he's a puppy. Uh being a puppy dog means while he is average sized for a dog his age, it does not mean he is average sized for a dog in general. However, being a white puppy dog means he is a white dog in general. We did not need to know uh he was a puppy dog though to make sense of him being white, but we kind of did to know that he was average sized. Uh, again, um if uh, we could even just to provide a clear demonstration, if um, I was to say mammal, like Mackie is definitely not an average size mammal. Out of all the mammals on Earth, he would probably be on the lower rung. So this is why um, why we make this distinction. Geach makes this distinction, and he kind of brings it to bear in his ethics uh, or semantics of the good. So let's take this following proposition. Uh, X is good. Let's go with the first test. Do we have any notion of what it can mean for X to be good if we do not know what X is? Um, well, let's take this G.K. Chesterton quote. The word good has many meanings. For example, if a man were to shoot his grandmother at a range of 500 yards, I should call him a good shot, but not necessarily a good man. Yeah, and because good would be in accordance with something's proper function. So if we don't know what the Mackie is, then we wouldn't know what the proper function of the Mackie is. Exactly. I, I, like, get, I get it. I get it. I'm following. Yeah. And just like also the social functions, like we know the social functions of being a good shot. Well, I'm and or more of an athletic function in that case. And we also know the social functions of being a good man. Um, but those two things don't overlap. And here's the next test. X is good, all X's are Y, Y is good. So Ron is a good athlete, all athletes are citizens, uh, because you have to be a citizen of somewhere to be an athlete, uh, at least on an international level. Therefore, Ron is a good citizen. Um, well, that's not necessarily the case. Like he, like Ron might be a great athlete. He might have a lot of integrity when he plays his sport. He might be zero tolerance when it comes to cheating. Um, but you know, it might be the case that he doesn't pay his taxes, or it might also be the case that, um, I don't know, he uh, he rebelled against his nation because uh, he thought it betrayed uh, their core foundation, something like that, something that makes him not really a good citizen. All right, so this is kind of what leads us into this. Um, notion of the good as a matter of being an attributive rather than a predicative adjective. And now um, I'm not going to go through all the objections to this because there are many. Uh, one of them is, you know, okay, sure, maybe uh, some uses of good are uh, attributive, but there have got to be some that are predicative. And, and one kind of common example is God. You know, 
God isn't good for anything. We wouldn't want to say that of God. So in what sense is he uh, good that's not predicative? And, you know, the best sort of response there is God, we say God is good because everything else functions towards him. He is the common good of all things. Because everything else is good for God, we ascribe God goodness in the same way as we would describe um, the uh, as as we would ascribe the property of the effect to that of the cause. Like, uh, for example, and this is kind of great about the analogy of language. Um, if I was to say asparagus is healthy, and that man is healthy, well, I'm guessing it's because asparagus has a good track record of making men healthy, even though we have nothing in common with one another. It, it's mostly the it's mostly like a causal function of analogy. And that's usually also one of the ones I like to demonstrate analogy because uh, it doesn't asparagus and man doesn't don't really have a common property of which to call them analogous. So uh, if you ever want to just bring that up with the SCOTUST, um, I'm kind of betraying my camp here. That's pretty much one I haven't found a good counterexample to for the univocity of being. <laughs> okay, so goodness and fun. So um, as uh, Nathaniel Alexander kind of uh, illustrates how goodness uh, functions, um, it functions to like square of in mathematics. In math, square of takes numbers as arguments and yields their values, but alone is incomplete. So if I say square of, like square of what? Square, it has to be associated with the number. I know the square of 100 is 10. Likewise, X is good on its own is incomplete and requires us to know uh, what kind of thing X is. To say X is good is to imply X is an instance of a kind K. And by the way, I know this is so technical, um, but Bear with me here. And this is mostly Nathaniel Alexander's all, um, stuff from his book. Um, all mistakes are my own. He's just fantastic. And I strongly suggest getting it if you're going to want to jump into, you know, defending against analytic philosophers, tom the Thomistic uh, or um, the Scotistic or whatever natural law position of ethics you take, uh, this sort of thing. Uh, to say X is an instance of a kind K is such that it has the relevant properties required for its being that kind to such and such a degree. Um, and to say you ought to do X is to say you are of some kind such that doing X is necessary for being a good X. So um, so here's the kind of uh, example we can take. Um, a human heart exists to pump blood. Now, when, now, if I was to say that's a good heart, I'm implying a lot of what seems to be like a lot of normative qualities, like it ought to pump blood, um, it ought not to have any rips and tears in its constitution. Um, that's that's another thing. Um, it ought to be uh, it ought to be made for the person or originate with that person. So, for example, you could have a heart transplant, but usually that sort of thing is. Uh, is something that is of last resort, and it's not something that's perfect. Um, a perfect um, relation would be it be your own heart and be healthy rather than somebody else's. So there's an expectation that the agent is the one that produces the heart. So the it's the effect of the agent who is the efficient cause, something like that. So you have all these normative properties that come into play here, or that seem to come into play. And this is where you could kind of build what's called a metaphysics of goodness. So metaphysics 
is itself a disputed term, but I think we should just go with the classical definition, which is things you have to presume in order for physics to get off the ground. And by physics, we just mean the science of everything that changes. So uh, you, you probably know that more than I do. Would you say that's a fair definition of like the classical understandings of physics and metaphysics? Yeah, I'd say that'd be a pretty good way because I mean, it is after physics. Yeah, that is true. And it does <laughs> transcend the physics. Correct. Yeah. So ask yourself the question, do I have a good pen? If I have an instrument for writing or drawing with ink, then I have a pen. If I have a good pen, then it is only good insofar as someone can write or draw with it in various conditions. So imagine you had a pen where you can um, draw with it in outer space or when the heat conditions become so hot, uh, it still writes or becomes so cold, it doesn't freeze, it still is doing that writing. Or imagine if, um, for example, it's so good that it instantaneously reacts and it's sensitive to the pressure you place on the pen, which is pretty good if you're an artist uh, or doing some writing. So, you know, these are kinds of uh, qualities we look for in a good pen, because even though they're um, even though they're just not necessary for it to be a pen, you know, they improve the writing and they improve the degree to, to which something is a pen and functions as one. So those are the kinds of things we can ask about pens. And these are artifacts. And I think uh, we need to make a distinction between the goodness of artifacts and the goodness of human beings or other natural kinds. But we'll get to that in a moment. So we can ask ourselves likewise. Uh, a what is a good human being? A good human, like a good pen, is only good um, insofar as it has the relevant properties required for its humanity to such and such a degree. If a human being is, you know, as Aristotle pointed out, a rational social animal, then I am only a good human being to such a degree that I am rational, that I socialize well in a communal context with other beings of my kind, and that I maintain the traits of a healthy being of my type. This, so um, those are um, some ways you can go from the essence of a thing to its goodness. Now, some might say, okay, but let's say I'm like born handicapped, so like my legs don't function. Am I not a good human being? Um, or, you know, something that wasn't really your fault? Well, human beings differ from other animals in that we are also rational animals. And what is one faculty of a rational animal other than their will, their reason, and their ability to exercise those things freely. We don't judge a human being based on things that go beyond their powers, but only to those things which are within their control. So that's kind of the main difference. And that's why we can assign moral praise and blame to other agents, because those are things within their control. And we can punish them and we can give them adulation because those are things that they bear the responsibility to do and they have it on themselves to accomplish. And that's not because of a result of their lower or bodily functions. That is their more animalistic ones because, you know, all animals have that. What makes us different is the fact that we actually have the power to, um, as agents, to uh, cause these things to ourselves and others. And that's what separates the two things. It's the function of, it's the function of uh, your cognitive abilities towards the good, not necessarily your, um, your your more physical abilities.
So, and this also gets to another issue of relativizing, you know, kinds of good. So does that mean like I could be a bad human being so long as I'm a good adulterer? Like why should we care about being good human beings and not good adulterers or uh, bad human beings and not um, good serial killers or something like that? So this is why we have to focus on what's called the primary kind. X belongs to K and any term that refers to K is a metaphysically better question, uh, answer to the question, what kind of thing is X than any term that also refers to K. So if I asked what kind of thing is Julian, the answer he is human is better than the answer he's an organism or an animal because while those are correct, it doesn't really get to the heart of what Julian is. You could get into more specifics like what Julian is individually, but what we want is something that answers the question, what would make Julian who he is uh, no matter any other uh, accidental quality. Like, uh, for example, it seems like, let's take Christian Wagner, for example. We can imagine a scenario where, uh, you know, you, um, instead of growing up in the United States, your parents moved to Australia. Uh, so that that seems possible. But if we were to say, we can imagine a scenario where, uh, you know, you had two different parents and you grew up in Asia and uh, you grew up in the Chinese um, empire. I'm like, yeah, that doesn't really seem like Christian. Like he doesn't, that, that whatever that entity who I'm referring to is, doesn't have the same genetic components. Um, he doesn't have the same biological background. He, um, the psychology, yeah, chances are not, the, not a similar psychology. If we connect uh, one psychology to the body, like most, uh, uh, most Thomists want to do, it doesn't really seem to answer the question. What does it is, what are those common traits of you as an individual, as well as uh, what as, what kind of group do you commonly belong to? So those are kind of like the, um, that's the primary kind we want to get at. Like what group do you best fit in? And what, and what is informative? So um, there, so um to give an example that would drive the point home, um, something I could say about you, uh, no matter what, is that there's only one of you, but that's not really informative. But if I was to say you're a rational social animal, well, that's getting into a lot of specifics here. And those are essential to you because um, they couldn't have differed any other way. And they're required for you to be a human just like anyone else. So this is why we're we're more concerned about primary kinds than other kinds. It's because they're better metaphysical, they're better questions to, sorry, because it gives us a better metaphysical answer to the question of what kind of thing you are. And that's where you should primarily start and everything else should be good or bad based on top of that. And that's a justification I'll get into later because you can always have somebody, well, what if I just don't desire it? What if I just don't want it? Why, why ought I do it? Like, it's still that question seems to still not at the back of our minds right now. And just to drive the point home about artificial versus natural kinds. So the pen is an artificial kind because um, its essence can be reduced to its functions. What it is can be reduced to what it does. But a heart doesn't seem to be like that. So a heart does function by pumping blood and producing sound. But let's say that, you know, God intervened and there was no thump thump sound. You know, it still strikes me as being a good heart, all else considered. But um, 
you know what else pumps blood too? Artificial hearts. But no one would say an artificial heart is a heart, just like no one would say an artificial leather belt is a leather belt. Artificial is supposed to negate that sort of thing. Um, if uh, furthermore, um, so with all, so it seems to me that there are a lot of other things we want to take into kind as well, like its constitution, uh, like it's something like its cause. Um, that sort of thing. And also the fact that its essence was, or its composition was something that uh, we're not forcing onto it, but rather it's just, it's just something that belongs to the structure. Whereas a pen, it's basically a machine. It sort of functions like a machine. It has all these desperate parts that are just uh, kept together by more, by what seems like more fundamental things. So those are the sorts of things we would want to say um, don't make uh, make a natural kind different from the artificial kind. Um, does that make sense? That does. Awesome. I'm just going to check uh, the comments quickly. Those questions can be more... Oh, uh, are you a scotistic realist, John Fisher 2.0? Uh, I do. Yeah, I do lean in that direction. I think that, uh, like Dun Scotus, I am somebody who thinks that there are such things as Hexades. So I'm a scotistic realist in that sense. And I'm also a realist in the sense that I don't believe in universals um, that exist outside of the mind. But I think that they Please. all should. Yeah, but I do think that there is. <laughs> but I do think that uh, the universals which exist in the mind are caused by a com are an effect of a common cause found both in the object in which they're abstracted from and the uh, cognitive powers of the brain. So I would say I'm a scotistic realist like that, whereas I think a, a Thomist like uh, my friend Christian would probably argue that no, universals exist, uh, they're out there, and as you come across many of them, you're just gonna abstract them. That, that's how it goes. Like, uh, well, do you say that's a fair- uh, I've actually, I've been um, discussing yeah. back and forth with one of my patrons mm -hmm. recently and uh, just reading myself a lot of St. Thomas, and I think the Neotomus might have the questions of the question of universals a little bit backwards. They might have overreacted against a lot of the nominalists. So uh, because I'm kind of more of a paleotomist, like just straight up Thomas, give me me, my summa and under a tree sort of <laughs> solo Thomas. Yeah. Solo Thomas. Yeah. So um, but that brings me to actually one of the one of the questions I had about um, mm -hmm the way in which you're defining good, if I'm understanding you correctly. Right. So um, would you define it in, insofar as something is acting towards a certain exemplar, like uh, the idea of um, that the thing insofar it as it participates in the, uh, the true um mm -hmm. the true thing i don't i don't like that phrasing but the true thing in the mind of god like um this uh, i don't know this human mm -hmm. me i'm a good human insofar as i participate fully in the idea of what it means to be human in the mind of god right so this brings us to a more theological question and it's one i haven't really considered too much so i'm not really committed to us to an answer but 
alternatively say this, this is where I am leaning. So I'm leaning to the idea that there are uh, two ends. There's an imminent end and that's found within nature. And there is a supernatural end found with God. And I think the imminent ends are things which are like, well, think of all the things that help us flourish on earth, um, study, um, think of um, athletics, think of eating, think of marriage. Those would be natural goods because they're goods that can be fulfilled here where we have a disposition towards those ends. But on the other hand, uh, when it comes to uh, God, um, that would be an example of a transcendent or uh, yeah, a transcendent good. So, so are you are you uh, speaking in the same categories as would would be what well, at least I was taught to call approximate and an ultimate end? Yes. Okay. Okay. That makes that makes sense. Yeah, because I it se- it seemed like at least through some of what you were saying that right. you were grounding goodness um, in the thing rather than grounding goodness um, outside of the thing. And then uh, the goodness exists insofar as it participates in the, uh, in the mind of God. And then, and then we know it um, in the mind. Like, do you get what I'm trying to, that what I'm trying to get at? Yeah. So if I, if I understand you correctly, what you're saying is um, insofar as what are we participating, which makes us good? Is it the thing? Is it God? Is it both? Like, like is it, is it something like that? Well, um, I, because I believe that, uh, especially reading St. Thomas, he's a lot more Neoplatonist than you would uh, at first imagine. I think Gavin so, Kerr makes that very same argument in one of his books. Yeah, so reading reading St. Thomas and his and mm. Augustine too, in their view of goodness, the um, what a, a good thing exists. Uh, primarily and supremely in God's idea of that thing. Mm-hmm. And then in, in if we're going to use Platonic language in the forms or in the ideas, and then also Aristotle is right in, in, in that the forms exist, uh, exist in the things themselves too. Mm-hmm. And insofar as it participates in the, uh, the true ideas in the mind of God, and it's grounded in the divine intelligence. And then when uh, when we go and look for true things, mm. that what we're doing is we are pattering our minds after the divine mind. Mm. Is it sort of this process of, um, of uh, expulsion and then return? Sort of that Neoplatonist idea of things are going from God and then we in our in our investigation of all of reality, looking for goodness are going back to God and patterning our minds after God. And then there's almost this theosis process of the mind that comes through uh, study of the, uh, of the material world. Right. So that's a lot to take in there. So like I said, I'm not really married to any one idea, but the, the one I'm going to lean towards is something along these lines. I think that man has a natural, has a more imminent end in the things of nature, uh, things which order us. And um, basically, we have like a list of things we desire or a chain of things we desire. And the intellect is what, and the intellect um, has the responsibility um, to order them. And it's ultimate, and 
we have a, a capacity to um, obtain what are called the natural uh, virtues, you know, things like prudence and temperance and, and things mm -hmm. like that. Those are things we can exercise. Um, so, but when it comes to things like supernatural virtues of faith, hope, and charity, um, we can't really get those unless we have um, a supernatural means to them. And those are the means of the sacraments of the church, which require God's grace. So I would think of it kind of like, I would think of it kind of like this. Uh, nature is imperfect. It does not work. Uh, uh, we all seem to have this draw towards fulfilling ourselves and, and becoming morally perfect. We just can't really do that. And it seems like unless there is some sort of theosis process, as you said, um, you know, nature is basically giving us like a false desire. And mm. And we have to look to some supernatural revelation. So this is actually kind of more where I want, and I haven't really formulated the argument for it. This is kind of where I want to take my argument. I want to make it more along the lines of nature does nothing in vain. Um, we all have a desire towards uh, moral perfection. And because we have a desire to moral perfection, um, it means that uh, that desire is itself not in vain. And we are more likely than not to be able to achieve it, um, which is only expected if a form of uh, theism is true, specifically Christian theism, which does give us this whole uh, grace-perfecting nature story. Whereas I think more uh, legalistic traditions like Islam and Judaism don't really have it. They have the law, but they have no grace. That comes through Christ. So I think um, that's kind of more my conception of the relation of the supernatural and the natural good. Uh, we are so, mm -hmm. we are ordered towards uh, nature and natural goods and natural virtues. We fall short of them. And it is only through uh, the graces of the church where we can be sanctified and achieve the supernatural virtues of grace, um, hope and charity. Yeah, sorry. Faith, hope, faith, and, charity. hope and charity. Yeah, yeah I, I, I get what you're saying. Um, yeah. I think this really also plays into uh, St. Thomas's view of happiness, desire, and the beatific vision right. that um, all men desire to have their own being. All men, actually all things tend towards the perfection of their own being. Right. And then our highest faculty is our intellect. So through our intellect, we are going all men, as Aristotle says in the beginning of the metaphysics, all men naturally desire to know and that we're going to naturally desire towards that ultimate perfection mm -hmm. of our intellect. And in our highest faculty, which is our vision, we're going to tend towards the beatific vision, even if we don't realize it. So in in insofar as as all this is true, then it must necessarily follow from the very nature of what it means to be a good man, that is to be fulfilled in the intellect and in the vision mm -hmm. that the beatific vision is true. And that is what the church has preached always mm -hmm. and everywhere. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And you know what? I would definitely agree with that. I think that um, I think that uh, maybe the difference is your kind of perspective is more top down where mine is a little more bottom up. But mm. I, I think um, method aside, we're uh, we're basically trying to reach the same place. Well, yeah, I, I yeah. think it might also have to do with uh, the philosophy versus theology. Yeah, because like there's a few points where I cringe and then I'm like, wait, he's talking about this in a different sense than I'm used to. Mm -hmm. And then it's kind of just have to mold my mind like yeah. uh, that. Um, I also had another question. That's yeah, sure. actually, I think I can go through your slides myself. Oh, there nice. you go. I can move your slides. 
Okay, where was it when you're talking about uh, predicative and then attribute attributive? I don't right. Know I said attributive. Um, so when when it comes to this, uh, objectiones one, <laughs> <laughs> it would seem that uh, this would deny um, the fact that God is ipso facto goodness. And that all of their goods are just participations in in his ipso facto goodness, because it seems to be a good account of the ideas um, and the fact that uh, the the things in reality are participating in the uh, in the ideas in the mind of God. But it doesn't seem to account for uh, ipso facto um, goodness, which is um, which is found in in God's God's ex essence and existence. Right. So. Okay, so contra objection one things can be predicated um, analogically. They can be predicated you, um, you, uh, in a univocal fashion, or they can be um, equivocal. That is, they can mean they could be the same word but mean two different things. Uh, I would want to say that they are analogous rather than either predicative. Oh, sorry, than either univocal or uh, being equivocal. Yeah. And because of that, I'd want to say that, yes, in a certain sense, God is good. God is the good. Um, but I mean that not in the sense of um, not in, but I mean that in the analogical sense. And I mean that in the sense that he is the cause of the goodness of other beings. And because there's nothing in the effect, which there's nothing in the cause, which does not exist within the effect first. Uh, we would say that God is also good, and God is our good, not in the sense of, um, not in the sense of uh, being the same way we would say it of ourselves as a, as an attribute nor a predicate, but rather as a means of identifying what we are all aiming for. So, I, so does that make sense as a as a response? Yeah, it seems like um, from from the nature of of your presentation, what you're getting at is. Rather than um, an overarching uh, an overarching um, presentation of goodness per se, you are trying to get into a um, of goodness in the mode of existing in uh, the natural world. Is that's more so what you're trying to get at? Exactly, uh, goodness as it exists in God. I want to. I want to say it's analogical, and I want to take more of a negative theological position in the sense of um, we are predicating to this of God as the uh, cause to us, the effect. We're attributing all our goodness to the sense that he is the cause of it, and we're also attributing it to the fact that um, because all things strive towards their good, because that's what they're attracted to and are pulled towards and aimed towards, it would therefore follow that uh, God is going to be the good we are all striving for. Does this mean I have to say that God has something good which it is for? No. Uh, do I have to say it? Is it modifying God in the sense of an adjective? No. There's only God is one. He's not. Uh, I'm not saying he's a subset of anything else. I'm not saying that there's a good. There's a number of good things to which he's a subset of. But rather, all I'm saying is, uh, God is the cause to the goodness in us which is an effect and we say it because we are all what because god is all that we are aiming for even though some of us will fail in that aim okay okay that sounds good so i'm gonna 
getting the chat, see if there's any other questions. Unless you have anything else you want to say before oh, we get to the Q&A. Oh, there's a few more slides. Oh, there are a few more slides. Oh, I didn't even know that. Okay, go ahead. Oh, yeah. Oh, so I'm just going to, yeah. So here are a few contrary models. So some will say functions are not normative. What do you mean we ought to do this or we ought to do that? No, we, we don't say that the heart pumps blood because that's what it ought to do. It's because of statistics or it's genetic history. So ideological just means genetic history. It um, F like hearts pump blood because it comes from um, ancestors who also pump blood, whose ancestors also pump blood. Not Not the hearts themselves, but of course they, their organs, which at one time pumped blood because they did it for our ancestors. Statistical models would say, oh, no, we say it's a, a matter of function because um, we just observe a lot of things doing that. Just like how we would say it's big or small or average because we know that there's um, a that there's a group of animals and then we just say, this is on the low end, this is on the high end, et cetera. And, we're going to defend the teleological one. So here, so here are some objections to the statistical model. Um, we actually know that there are things where a lot of their members do not accomplish their functions, but it's still a function. So in terms of sperms fertilizing eggs, like you get one, two, maybe three, four, five that accomplish it. Seven, eight, nine, if you're in a Catholic, good Catholic household. But basically, <laughs> but basically, a vast majority of your sperm are failures. In fact, everyone won the race. So good job, um, uh, everyone. If you failed in any other respect of life, just know that you beat a lot of other competitors. But we still want to say, you know, the function of a sperm is to fertilize an egg. So, like, that's just one objection you could throw at it. Um, a majority of hearts also make thumping sounds, yet no one would say a heart is functioning properly if it's making thumping sounds but not uh, pumping blood. So here's the ideological model. This is the one about history. So at the very least, we know God could have created Adam de novo, that is, from nothing, and he would still have functions. It doesn't matter whether or not he had ancestors. Uh, biochemical machines can have a new function in a new biological context. So... Uh, imagine the first biological organism being formed, like like it's functioning as a biological organism rather than something else, because it's like the first of its kind. Uh, one plant, one Alvin Plantinga uh, is inspired is like imagine. Have you ever read the series or watched the series Man in a, a High Tower? No, I prefer to stay away from the um, the Nazi the stuff. <laughs> I was yes. going to say the certain uh, nationalistic party with socialist tendencies in 1940s <laughs> yeah. Germany, but since you said it, okay. <laughs> yes. So, ima so imagine a world where uh, the Nazi scientists won and they introduced these mutations in the visual systems of non-Aryans. These mutations function by causing visual pains, uh, while those who lack them are wiped out. So your, but your chance of surviving is better if you have these visual pains caused by this mutation and then if you don't have them in which case you're just killed because you know hitler just wants a bunch of these non-aryans to survive and just have tormentuous lives no one would want to say that these uh, visual sim uh, systems are functioning properly and also uh, this is one given by rob coons and of course these are all objections except uh, i believe the second one that's one i uh, uh 
that's when I believe. Um, and regardless, Nathaniel Alexander, just read his book. Um, most of the stuff you'll get from him. Um, according to Coons, it gets the counter possibles wrong. So it makes Darwinianism ontologically necessary for the possibility of function. However, if we were to discover that you know Darwinian evolution is false, we wouldn't conclude that there's no function. So that's not really going to work. Also, it doesn't really help if you're not a Darwinist. So you know, if you're already like uh, some, if you're already something like a young Earth creationist or an old Earth creationist, or you believe in something like a uh, uh, Lamarckian evolution or some other mode of evolution, it's uh, it's just not going to be convincing. Then you have the teleological model. I'm not going to define this, but uh, basically, um, here are the three things that I'm not going to give like a super precise definition. So the three things that you need in order to uh, function properly or to have a proper function are, so the fact that things in the kind have a state is explained by the existence of a causal law linking this uh, state and this kind to the function as an effect. Uh, the system, basically all it's saying is, yeah, there's some kind of causal link between what the function of a thing is, between the kind it belongs to, and and the state that it's in. Like, why does it exist? Or the system fun the system functions f and p. Um, meet uh, condition one for v form. Uh, you know what? Um, rather than go through all this, basically summing up the three facts. Um, the existence, uh, the first point is there has to be a causal connection between the kind, uh, the state it's in, and the, um, and the function itself. The system of functions has to be harmonious uh, with the uh, state of the, uh, the organism as well as the, uh, the group. And the existence of things in the kind is explained by the harmony found in the conditions. So here's a, a kind of example. When is, oh, uh, and also it goes into when is there harmony? For many, but not necessarily all members of Y of K, the fulfillment of X increases the probability of the fulfillment of Y. And for many, but not necessarily all members of Y of K, the fulfillment of X does not significantly decrease the probability of the fulfillment of Y. So here's just like more of an illustration. So imagine if there were clay crystals created to dam up a stream by forming a shallow pool that dries up. And once dried, these crystals blow away to dust and they're deported to another stream. And while they are formed uh, where they are because they clog up the stream, uh, they actually do happen to contribute to the flourishing of the larger system. Um, so more fit, not as many fish just go through the stream. It means that more fish are available to the land animals. More land animals eating the fish means that they're able to thrive more, uh, poop more, which is great for the plantation, which is therefore great for um, any uh, herbivores which happen to be in the area. And now the clay crystals, because they're there and because they help the streams flourish and stuff, and because they're good for the animals and and all this, it seems like they're, they have a function in that uh, ecosystem it the ecosystem is explaining the clay's existence and the clay's contributing to like the well-being of the rest of the ecosystem as well so it seems like the clay has a proper function there and if someone was to remove it again then it seems like it would be detrimental so this is kind of the thing 
uh, when we speak of proper functions. It's basically something which has its own um, purpose within the larger system and it contributes to the harmony of the larger system and the harmony of the larger system goes back and assists in um, in that uh, in the well-being of that portion of it or that part of it so there's this one big web so think of the intellect for example uh, one great thing about the intellect is it adapts to its surroundings it learns more about the world around it it uh, avoids dangers and because of that and because it depends upon the body the body is able to uh, provide nourishment for its function. Uh, the body is able to um, be exercised as a way of uh, contributing knowledge back to the intellect. So there's a certain harmony going with all these parts as well, um, which is great for the whole. And in terms of disharmony, are, are you familiar with Full Metal Alchemist? I'm not. Okay, so um, actually, I wonder if anyone in the chat is. I have enough nerds in the chat, so uh so so I'm probably not spoiling anything. So the uh the show is about um uh, alchemists who are um military soldiers and mercenaries and these alchemists do all this special research and one of them is in creating chimeras which are hybrids of um two supposed animals. And Shao Tucker is one of these alchemists. He had a breakthrough years ago, but the Chimera ended up dying. And apparently in the show, you found out that the Chimera was actually not two animals, but uh, one animal and his wife that he merged into another animal. Okay. And, and then he does it with his daughter again because he's oh, under pressure. Man. Yeah, it's really messed up. Um, so this Chimera is composed of two members, but it lacks any proper function because the members, uh, Nina, his daughter, and the dog, Alexander, do not increase the well-being of the whole by functioning with one another. And in fact, they decrease the well-being of the whole by functioning. It's like, it's, we would say it's an abomination to God because it's just two members perpetually making each other miserable in their very own existence. Like there is a, like there's a reason why um, if this was a form of witchcraft, we would probably be okay uh, hanging this sort of person. Um, based. Based, yes. So lastly, we want to get to the objectivity of goodness. And this is more about uh, epistemology, like how we know things. So over there is David Hume. And Ew. You know what? I'm actually going to say one nice thing about David Hume. Um, he actually points out all the problems in his mod in the Enlightenment way of thinking, and and then everyone commenting on him has to has to basically figure out okay what kind of went wrong here are we missing something, and it kind of lends some credibility to the um, to the theistic project because you know if we get rid of God you know, and this is kind of what we're left with maybe uh, Hume's uh, uh, Hume's bad conclusions can function as great reductios or something like that. And, you know, I'll also give uh, David Hume credit for this. He's actually um, a Tory, so he was a conservative, <laughs> which, is, which I find to be very hilarious. And, in fact, uh, you can make a skeptical argument against liberalism on the basis that, well, look, um, empirically speaking, we know that our institutions at least function. You're a revolutionary. 
you're a rationalist who's thinking about a utopia a priori. Like, why should I trust you in this matter? <laughs> like, there's actually a, a pretty good Humean argument for conservatism, but I digress. So, so, Hume, so there are three things we can't really hold together. And one of them seems very intuitive. It's Hume's theory of reason. Well, it's a theory of reason attributed to Hume. If there is a reason for someone to do something, then she must have some desire that would be served by doing it. So, for example, why did I get out of bed this morning? Well, I just, I'd, I'd feel lazy. All right. Um, why should I study? Well, if you'll study, you get good grades. Basically, it's means ends reasoning. So these are what are called hypothetical categories. Like if you want to do this, you ought to do that. Um, and whereas categorical norms are more, you just ought to do that. It's just something you ought to do. Okay, so there are these normative categories, but if all reason is just based on some desire, then we have an issue. And it goes when we contemplate moral rationalism and absolutism. Some actions are morally wrong for any agent, no matter what motives and desires she has. And lastly, moral rationalism. A moral agent has a justification for how she ought to act in such and such a fashion. So what's inconsistent here? So what reason is there to be good, like a good human, and not be bad, if it has to be justified on desires? If Sarah has moral obligations not to be a gangster, then she must have some reason not to be a gangster. However, if Hume's right, a reason to do the good only exists if she has a desire to do the good. And if the good is a desire, is a desire-dependent thing, then doing good is not absolute. Either Sarah is not irrational in rejecting the good and you know being a gangster, or doing the good is dependent on the stance of the moral agent. So historically, there have been ways to try to get around this. Um, an atheist by the name of Philippa Foot, who was really into Aquinas and Aristotle, funny enough, although she never Based. converted, she never converted, but at least she Cringe. recognizes. But she recognized good philosophy at the very least. Um, her response was to say, you're right, there is no reason to be moral. There's the good and the evil, and you just volunteer to do one. And in fact, that's actually what makes the good noble. It's not based on you know a rational impulse. It's just based on wanting to do it. And that was the early Philippa Foot. And then later she was like, yeah, actually that that view was kind of cringe. So she kind of changed it and took up another position whose view I'm probably not going to do justice, but that was her early view anyway. And you could read it in her essay on hypothetical, on, uh, let's see, morality. Ah, shoot. Uh, I believe it's uh, morality as uh, hypothetical norms or something like that. Oh, shoot. That, the title is going to kill me. Morality as a system of hypothetical imperatives. So that's one way of trying to get around the issue, but that doesn't sound good to me. Like when God is like, um, sorry, you've sinned against me, an immortal God. Um, you have sinned against humanity, uh, perish into the eternal fire. Um, and the guy's like, okay, but why ought I have been good? Like what reason did I have to be good? And God's all like, well, not really. Like it's it's your free will, and he just banishes you. Like that that doesn't really, if you're from a theological perspective, that doesn't really seem right. On top of that, um, not even theologically speaking. Like imagine, uh, I don't know, imagine the Armenian genocide, 
um, those who, like the Turks who committed it. I'd have to say that they weren't ir being irrational in committing the Armenian genocide. They were evil, but, you know, evil isn't irrational. Uh, I don't like that. A uh, bunch of uh, Lebanese actually died in the Armenian genocide. You know, I have some connection to that. So, yeah, I kind of want people who are immoral to be irrational in some sense. So one way of doing it is to reject rationalism, uh, both human and non-human, for what's called reliabilism, and moral rationalism for moral reliabilism. So reliabilism is a view that grounds the warrant to believe in a proposition, uh, which is in part external to your beliefs and desires, that is also obtained by a reliable belief-causing mechanism. And moral reliabilism is just applying it. So um, here's a bit of a thought experiment to just get it off the ground, um, just to get this idea. So imagine you're in your study, uh, you're reading uh, some Summa Theologia, and the time is kind of getting past you. And you look up at your clock, and it's uh, 5 p.m., and it's dinner time. And you're like, oh, shit, it's 5 p.m. You go, you're off to dinner. And um, apparently, uh, later on, you realize, wait, this clock was stopped. But it was 5 p.m. It just happened to be 5 p.m. Uh, your wife just made dinner. Um, would you say you would you say you knew now? Would based on the fact that uh, your belief was true, it was justified. When you look at a clock, you seem to have a good reason to believe it's the time it shows, and um, and it's something you believed. Would you say that in itself made uh, what you were doing knowledge? No. Yeah, because it's you. You just got lucky. Like no one wants to say that it was that they knew something based on luck. And that that's actually a very famous case put forward by Bertrand Russell. It was revived by Edmund Gettier. And uh, this was basically a challenge to a very popular view called uh, that said that uh, knowledge was a matter of true justified belief, or at the very least, it was, uh, you know, a, uh, one that was taken as roughly close. And the issue there is it was a problem for what was called internalism. The idea that something is knowledge based on the way you reasoned or thought about something or came to a conclusion in your own mind. But it kind of rules out external factors to your own mind. Like it seems like the accident there was entrusting in a broken clock. Or, and we could just run all these kind of deceptive experiments, but... Um, basically, you had uh, thinkers, and one of them was Alvin Plantinga, who said, actually, what grounds um, something as being true is based on the fact that it was uh, construct that you obtained it through a reliable belief-causing mechanism, such as your senses. And not only was it reliable, it was based upon reliable methods. So, tip so uh, let's go back to the whole clock analogy. Relying on a stop clock isn't a good method. If you have a brain lesion and you kind of realize by accident out of a plethora of the views you're thinking of that, oh, I have a brain lesion and you really believe it, um, that doesn't make it true because it, these things seem to be just true on accident, not true in the way that they're designed to operate and run. So if we get rid of uh, reliable, so if we get rid of uh, this kind of moral rationalism and stick to something which is more external, like a reliabilism, we kind of get around this issue. So, so here's, so um, here's just basically a list of things that would 
qualify something as being uh, knowledge. It's true. You believe it's true. And um, the fact is, it um, the, prom uh, the thing which you believe, it causes a whole web of beliefs about the world uh, for yourself or any members of your kind uh, to be, at least in part, uh, supportive uh, re with regard to representing the world. So you have like a kind of representation of the world based on all these propositions. It causes uh, your belief to be more reliable. Uh, P is believed um, through your uh, properly functioning cognitive process, and it's designed to reliably provide true beliefs for members of your kind in the context uh, those processes are functionally disposed to be aimed at truth. So here's an example. St. Hildegard believes that she ought to practice temperance, and, it's, and she only knows this if uh, she ought to practice temperance is true, and it's true based on the fact that um, if you're not practicing temperance, you're not really properly functioning as a rational human being. Uh, you there's something you definitely lack. She believes she ought she ought to practice temperance. Uh, believing um, that she ought to practice temperance causes a whole web of beliefs about the world to be uh, supported in representing it, as it would everyone else of humankind who believed in the same thing. And this is true because. Um, part of knowing that you ought to be temperate is just one knowledge of your proper functions, just like knowing your heart ought to beat. It's just one of a list of natural facts. And to lack it is to uh, have an issue where you are, you are wrong about what kind of being you are. And lastly, she ought to practice temperance is believed through some proper functioning cognitive process designed to provide truths in the context which, you know, uh, your processes were designed to be aimed at truth. So we want to say that God at least designs our cognitive process to know how we ought to function. So um, think so. Think of it like as a moral sense, like that's one possibility that we might want to break this down. Another possibility is to say that um, our desires themselves are are reliable in producing beliefs about what we ought to do if they're properly calibrated. And we look, and if we only look at our own desires, then we are not going to have a reliable belief causing mechanism because um, it's too self-centered. It's not going whereas if we're actually looking at universal desires for our kind, they are actually better answers to the question and a better representation of who we are as well. So that's one way around the issue. It's just to say, yep, reliabilism is true. Yep, knowledge is about building a web of beliefs that best capture the world. That, that web that best captures the world is based on believing in what we ought to do and also believing that, and also obtaining it in a reliable way, not based on, um, not based on this human idea of desire fulfillment or individual desire fulfillment, but rather based upon uh, based upon knowing how our desires ought to function and where they aim towards. And uh, yeah, that's basically how you kind of get rid of the triad. You just reject uh, moral, you kind of have to just reject the moral rationalism stuff, adopt this more externalist idea, and I think you're pretty golden. So why should I care about doing the good and avoiding evil? Well, here's one quick response. Following your desires without regard for their good undercuts any warrant in following them. While following your desires is reliable for providing your satisfaction, 
Um, it exists primarily to provide satisfaction in what's good for our common humanity. And since this warrants a misuse of your desire, believing you ought to do evil from your passions fails criteria four, and thus you have no warrants. In other words, evil has no warrants, and because evil has no warrant, um, it's not rational. So if you appeal to something to do something contrary to what a good person would do, uh, then you are basically appealing to something which is malfunctioning for its stated purpose. So here's a, so last slide I promise. Here's kind of an analogy. Imagine unknowingly that you got a truffle detector. You don't even know what, oh, sorry. I didn't change, I think I might've used a different, uh, um, I think you meant metal detector. Yeah. No, no, I meant truffle detector, but I didn't change the metal part. Uh, you know, it's probably better that no one reads that. So I'll just give the thought experiment. Imagine you get a truffle detector, but you don't know what a truffle is. And you go out, and the only thing you know about truffles is this thing detects them. And you go out, you dig up like a kind of the only rock in the area. And the and you keep getting this rock, and you're like, okay, this is what a truffle is. It's just a kind of rock. So you go out and you meet another person. Instead of digging for, instead of getting rocks, they're getting, you know, another truffle, an actual one. And then you're like, okay, uh, I, uh, I'm not sure if uh, who's is miss, who isn't work, who's is not working. This other guy doesn't know what a truffle is either. So they get a third guy. Um, this guy, instead of truffles or rocks, he's just getting metal. And a fourth guy is getting truffles. Now they. There are many ways you could reason about this. One is to say, you know, maybe there's no fact of the matter of what a truffle is. Let's just, you know, like forget about truffles or, or whatnot. Let's just get whatever this thing is getting. Um, another possibility is that, you know what? Truffleness is actually this uh, property of things which is necessary and it's indefinable and primitive. And you just don't get any more basic than that. Whereas, you know, someone in... Or someone in our position, and let's see. Or we could say some of these machines are bad at detecting what they ought to be detecting. Like that's how the proper functionalist would say about you know ethics. Uh, we have a moral sense and desires which um, work, which are which aim for something, and people who justify their desires based on personal wants are just not functioning properly, or just not using their functions as they ought to be. Just like how a metal detector ought, or a truffle detector ought to be for detecting truffles or something like that. So basically, this is how the exper thought experiment goes. Um, there is, as long as there is a fact about, of the matter of what you are as a natural kind, as long as there is a fact of the matter of how you ought to be functioning, uh, as opposed to you know functions just being a historical or statistical anomaly, as long as you got those things and you have a system of... Um, of knowledge that um, says you know something based on the reliability of your cognitive process and your ability to represent the world, then rather than something along the lines of means ends reasoning, like um, if you want X, then uh, you ought to do Y. If you uh, if you uh, want to do X, you ought to believe Y. That sort of thing. So I think. By accepting all of these things, uh, you do have a much better chance of avoiding these uh, skeptical arguments, and you also have a good chance of avoiding, like a lot of the arguments both uh, moral non-naturalists and moral anti-realists might have, 
He's gone. What happened? Oh. Uh, my there, my, there my, you are. My fault. Sorry, I accidentally clicked. Uh, I tried to get rid of the screen share rather than the, but I accidentally hit uh, exit studio. My apology. Okay, keep going. Now, right. So as I was saying, so moral naturalists have a challenge from moral non-naturalists and moral anti-realists, and we're not really going to get a, a a good defense of our position unless we have a strong model to build up from, and we have to look at it the semantics of goodness. We have to look at how goodness works. Uh, we have to look at what natural thing is grounding it. And I, you have to be really specific about this sort of thing. This is why if you're reading someone like Kuhn's, like he's very formulaic in how he defines teleology. He uses, it's basically like a mathematical formula. <laughs> so like breaking that down is pretty hard and I don't even have that much of a grasp. This is why I want to just introduce it like a sketch. And it also involves just knowing how to avoid these kind of objections from um, reasoning as being this very either in, real instrumental thing or being this really um, uh, being this uh, desire dependent thing. So, uh, yeah. That's all you have? Yeah, basically. Uh, any questions? There are some questions in the chat that I'll get to. I have to answer them a little quickly because dinner's almost ready. And uh, and I just checked my clock and I said, oh, crap, it's 6.30. Yeah, I'll give you a tip. I can be kind just, of... Just like, in your, just like in your analogy, yeah. but is my Mac clock right? That's yeah, the real question. Yeah. Yeah, is, it, is it justified? That's true. Okay. Oh, wait, no, not that one. Elijah, he uh, he was spamming us with some good questions. So, what is Alphonsus Liguori's position on this question? Um, I think he was. I can't remember what question, but um, he was asking in relation to uh, whether he believed the same thing as Saint Thomas, and I'm going to say yes uh, because if you read Alphonsus Liguori, I have his moral theology somewhere around here. Mm -hmm. um, but he basically just follows Saint anything Saint Thomas says. Was, Except uh, about predestination. Yeah, unfortunately. Mm. Sad. No one's perfect. No one's perfect. Uh, Liguori, Saint Liguori can be wrong too. So uh, the question, why isn't the will the highest faculty? So I'm going to share screen real quick. Um, let me get to that section of the Summa. Okay. Um, boom. Boom, boom, boom. There it is. Okay, so the reason is right here. For the object of the intellect is more simple and more absolute than the object of the will, since the object of the intellect is the very idea of appetible good. And the appetible good, the idea of which is in the intellect, is the object of the will. Now, the more simple and the more abstract thing is, the nobler and higher it is in itself, and therefore the object of the intellect is higher than the object of the will. Therefore, since the proper nature of a power is in its order to its object, it follows that the intellect in itself and absolutely is higher and nobler than the will. So basically, the the intellect has the idea of the thing where um, the will just uh, uh, goes towards the thing. Therefore, the intellect is nobler, simplicator, or simply. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's different for a scotist, but... Uh... I think the will would be the higher faculty, but I, I don't feel like defending that on a Thomas channel. 
<laughs> maybe we'll do it. Maybe we'll do it some other day. Yeah. Okay. So Elijah has another question. Um, how does moral realism fit with the fulfilling of the old law done by Christ? I.e., you don't have to be circumcised anymore, etc. Right. So the so the old law had a bunch of benefits. First off, because it was a teacher and instructor to the oncoming grace. So take uh, circumcision. Uh, circumcision would be the foreshadowing of baptism. Um, but baptism would be a greater fulfillment of it. Um, that was the first uh, thing. So as a foreshadowing, the second thing it, uh, that is a foreshadowing to grace. Um, the next thing is it was a very harsh uh, teacher. So the point of the law was also to say that, yeah, God's moral weight is pretty heavy. And the point of the law was to say that, yeah, you're, it's just not the thing you're going to be justified under. But it kind of prepared you for that sense of humility, which would come with the law and you would have with uh, with grace and that sort of thing you'd be much more appreciative about. Now, God as the highest lawgiver, um, the point of God giving a law, even if uh, it's based on a prudential reason rather than the fact that uh, it's just not something God can um, command contrary. Like, for example, God couldn't command that we don't love him. Um the reason God does that is also to prepare one um, for greater goods as well. So uh, take, for example, brushing your teeth as an adult. Um, that's not something your parents are going to make you do. Um, even if you have bad dental hygiene, like you're an adult, take care of that one yourself. But as a kid, you're kind of given that as kind of a strict rule by your parents, mostly to uh, prepare you for it. And they'll even make rules about that. They'll reward you and punish you if you don't. Because at that age, it's just the sort of thing you need to be doing. So the law has these functions as a disciplinarian, as something that's foreshadowing the better thing to come, and as something that that is preparing the, the Israelites in general. So those would be a couple of the functions of the law. Uh, anything to add? Basically, that's that's about it. And I think it also gets into some questions about how different types of law relate to one another. But that would be a whole stream in itself um, that I will do one day. And that's related more to political theology, where uh, which is uh, at a certain sense a little higher than the ethics. Because once you know how the proper function of of an anthropology, you kind of know um, the proper function of a polis or, or a city. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So Muppet Poppet asks, bro, how do you do so many good streams? I, I don't know. I, but if you would like an extra stream each week, you should become a patron right now. Patreon.com slash where you'll get an exclusive video after each of my metaphysics for dummies series part two, where I go into, um, some of the texts which I'm referring to. But uh, yeah, there's my little plug right there. I like to make it come natural. So let me go down. I I do... SCOTUS is kind of a voluntarist. Okay. Uh, he, I mean, yeah, he kind of is, but there is, some kind, there is some kind of a benefit to voluntarism. Like, uh, it's much easier for me to make sense of Pope Francis's recent development on the uh, death penalty, at least from my perspective, and why it's reversible. Uh, at least from my perspective, um, become, so 
I, I take a very odd view on that one, at least tentatively for now. My position is uh, God himself allows for uh, the the death penalty as one sort of dispensation from the law against uh, killing or the commandment against killing. And because these dispensations are granted biblically, um, I think the Pope and the Vicar of Christ can remove dispensations based on some sort of prudential judgment and those prudential judge and those that removal is binding on Catholics. So I think that's one way to resolve it. If you're a voluntarist, um, another way to resolve it, if you're, uh, a, a voluntarist, it, yeah, 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 you know, I, I basically stayed in my position. How other Catholics deal with that huge kettle of fish is, you know, their own issue. Oh, I deal with it completely differently, but I think I've went over this before, at least in a stream with a certain Protestant. Um, so yeah, that's all we have for you. Would you like to plug anything you got going on? Uh, yeah, um, my channel is John Fisher 2.0. Sorry, my name is John Fisher 2.0. My channel is Original Win Production. Uh, you can uh, check out my channel. I've not made a, a good video in a while. So if I am going to finish up more of my research on um, ethics, definitely improve the... Uh, the uh, I'm definitely going to improve my PowerPoint presentation, fix up the errors. I'm going to do a better job of communicating the the uh, philosophy of function that Coons is pushing, and um, and I think after that, try to build a sort of apologetic based on it. I, I expect that in the future, but just not too soon. Okay, that's great. So uh, also, are you back to being active on Twitter? I told everybody on Twitter that you were not dead anymore. Semi-active. Basically, I spent the whole day uh, talking to Operation Cyril, Cyril, whatever his name is. Oh, that Operation. Guy. Yeah, that's the guy actually that who I had the conversation with the death penalty about. That's a goy for Jesus. He did some um, response videos to me and then Swan Sona and Reason and Theology and stuff like that. I, I like his Twitter handle, I'll be honest, but I think his YouTube handle is just so cringe. Boomer. I'm a goy. Oh, it's Judaizing cringe. Yeah, well, uh, I am the true Israel for Jesus. How about that one? <laughs> okay, so um, that's all we have for you today. Remember, um, I'm going to put in the chat right now the link to my Discord. That is, as I say, every stream, and I will continue to push until the day I die. Very important, just in case um, we get a little spicy in one of my uh, streams and YouTube decides to take me down, and then Twitter and Facebook collude to uh, get rid of the militant Thomist. We will have our little Discord hideout where we can resurrect everything. So um, very important, and that's all I have, and I will talk to you guys tomorrow. Yes, I have an interview with Eric Ybarra tomorrow on his recent recent book about the Eucharistic sacrifice. I will see you guys later. Bye. Glory.